Hello, everybody. It's Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm here from Reinvent Yourself. I'm so glad you're joining us today. I am finally bringing to you a very good friend of mine, Marla Wynn Ginsberg, and she does the Marla Wynn Collection of Fashion, which you're going to love. If you look on my Instagram page, you'll see pictures of me with her and in her clothes. She does beautiful, very relaxed, but pretty and affordable clothing. And she's just a character. That's what you have to know. She is a self-made, self-remade several times person. Um, hilarious. Always finds the humor in everything. And what I didn't know about her until uh, we did this discussion today is that every time she reinvented, she did it by Googling. I didn't really realize that. She just Googled the hell out of whatever the new thing is she wanted to do. She said in 2008, when she lost everything, she Googled for a year and YouTube and learned how to get in, learned how to thread a needle into a sewing machine and learned how to sew that way and learned everything about the fashion trade online, which I did not know about her before that. She had been in the entertainment business in Hollywood, and she had been a producer, and she had been um, a 20-year stint um, at various places like ABC Touchstone, and she would, had been in advertising. She'd been 20 years in Paris. I mean, she'd been all around the world. And then when that all kind of fell apart, and she talks about how 2008, she lost everything, and she had to start all over. And she was saying that you couldn't really find money anywhere and that that was a big, huge downturn we had, the Great uh, Recession. And she just, she was a single mom. She had to figure it out and damn it, she did. And, but I did not know she did it like all us lifelong learners might do it, which is, but I honestly, even being a lifelong learner, didn't think about spending a year Googling. So anyway, there you go. She has a thriving $60 million business, even through COVID. And you're definitely going to want to hear her predictions for the future. Um, there's a lot of openings. She believes, and I think she's right, it feels totally right, um, for at-home fashion and beauty businesses that instead of doing them on an impersonal big scale, um, it might be things that we do door to door um, where we get to know people and where you're intimate with the people who you're selling to. It's a very interesting concept. It's been done in the past. It's maybe it's coming back with in a new way. I think she's right. Feels totally, absolutely interesting. And for those of you who are looking for a way to be creative and love fashion and beauty and want to do something new or have to, this could be an interesting opening. So I hope you'll enjoy my discussion with Marla. Here she is. So Marla, finally, we're together. Finally, <laughs> this has been going on forever. I know. Well, we've talked about doing this for ages, but we were so busy doing, yes. we didn't have time to talk. Yes. Yes. So let's talk a little bit. You have such an interesting background and you have reinvented in really, you know, out of one glamorous business into another glamorous business. And I would love to oh, hear. I don't know about the latter one. Okay. Well, to other people, we all know it's dirty and grimy and all that stuff, but you know, on the outside it looks pretty great. 
So maybe talk a little bit about how did you, you know, first of all, where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? Um, and how did you end up in television to start with and in entertainment? What drew you to that? Were you, and you're also, everybody has to understand, you're kind of a comedian yourself. So maybe it was that, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what? I've always been drawn to things people told me I couldn't do. So, you know, I applied to law school because I didn't think I could get in. And then I, I didn't go. I dropped out after like days. And, you know, it, it was like everything I tried to do, it was kind of like, I think I love the chase and I love the unknown and I love to learn. And kind of once I think I have something nailed, I get a little bored. I was, I was actually born in Denver and uh, applied to school as far away as I could go from Denver because I, it, in those days, I mean, it was so provincial and uh, got into a number of Ivy League schools, but the tuition was too much for us. And my grades weren't good enough to get scholarships. So I ended up at a compromise. I went to Washington University in St. Louis, which ended up being an amazing, incredible experience. I worked my way through college. Um, I made a deal with the school that if I could stay on the dean's list, I could work full time. So I started working very early. I was the uh, head of public relations for the Chase Park, then Chase Park Plaza Hotel. And I learned early on that I was completely a people person, that I loved being creative, that I needed a lot of human interaction. And, and I will tell you, I'm, get, I'm getting my fix on Zoom, so I'm surviving this nicely. Um, but I applied to law school, really didn't want to go. My parents wanted me to go. It would have saved me a fortune in life. I really should have done it. But um, I did not go to law school. I moved to Chicago under the pretense. Uh, I was one school I was waitlisted at was Northwestern, and I picked Northwestern. I mean, get into Harvard, but get waitlisted at Northwestern. Go figure. So I decided, huh? Okay, perfect. I had a boyfriend there. That was really a smart, you know, career and academic decision. And I wanted desperately to study at Second City. And the Goodman Theater was there. So, yes, I started in Chicago. Um, my first job was uh, at Leo Burnett. I started in advertising. And then on weekends and nights, I was studying at Second City. And then I sort of segued into producing a local TV show there. And that led to my getting picked up by Entertainment Tonight to cover everything between L.A. and New York. And that segued to my moving to L.A., and that segued to my spending a number of years there and realizing, oh, I hate L.A., although I miss it now. And I had a crazy opportunity, Leslie, to move to Paris. I, you know, I, I didn't speak French. I didn't know what I was doing. But I picked up everything and I moved to Paris. And that ended up being a 20-year stint, um, which was amazing. And who moves from Paris back to L.A.? An idiot, that's who. Um, but I did do that, and I moved back to the U.S. in about 2008 under contract to ABC Touchstone. Uh, then came the writer's strike, and then came a massive life change and reinvention. Um, I got hit really hard in 2008. Um, it probably could have only been worse if Madoff had had my money. Um, I just I lost my derriere. But one of the things I did during that time was I bought a sewing machine. And I used Google and YouTube, and I researched the apparel industry, came up with a business plan, learned how to thread a sewing machine, started a clothing line, and to make 10 years very short, 
we will close out this year in excess of 60 million at retail sales. Um, I My distribution is via TV retail, uh, as well as we're in 250 Chico stores, blah, blah, blah. It, what, I am an accidental success. I have been so lucky. I own my business. We have no debt. Um, and I love what I do because I make clothes for women my age. So I kind of know what my customer wants because I am my customer. And that would be the story in a nutshell. Good grief. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> woohoo. Okay. So tell people where they can get your clothing, where they can find it, and what the thinking is behind it. I didn't realize that you actually didn't grow up knowing how to sew. You learned it on Google? Yeah, Leslie. Well, first of all, I Googled you. I mean, that's how we... <laughs> <laughs> so you're just um, an you inveterate know, I, Googler, right? That's how you move. I, so. I, yeah, I figured anything called Google intrigued me. Um, no, I, I, I literally did Google and YouTube, like, how do you thread a sewing machine? How do you do a pattern? How do you do, you know, and if you're not, and if you, if you have enough patience and drink enough wine, you can get through just about anything. So I, I spent uh, 2008, 2009 Googling and, and YouTubing it. Um, and what happened was when I launched, I had a soft launch with my brand in 2009. We opened on HSN, which is the Home Shopping Network, and we were in Nordstrom Studio 121. So I did sort of a polyester rayon kind of collection for HSN, and I took those same designs, same everything, and did them in silks and higher-end fabrications for uh, Nordstrom. However, I did not read the fine print. Perhaps I should have gone to law school. And when Nordstrom's called me after being on the floor for, I don't know, a few weeks, they wanted more, they wanted me to ship them things. And I was like, well, you haven't paid me for the things I already shipped you. So how does that work? And in 2008, 2009, you couldn't find money anywhere. So I literally, you know, I didn't read that they pay you like, you know, 60 to 90 days later. So I just, I just had to pull out and I stayed with TV retail because it was a great model. Um, and I will say that I thought it was also an aging model and it was a model that I worried about, but I will tell you that it has turned out to be a miracle model because as YouTube video becomes a more important way of expressing everything we want to sell, they're perfectly positioned for that. And during COVID, while most brands are really struggling, we've been doing great. And we are on HSN in the US, TSC in Canada, I'm in QVC in Italy, Japan, and the UK. So, and you can also get my things. Um, I did a capsule collection. It's uh, on chicos.com under Marla Wynn for Chicos. Uh, so that's where you can find us. And, you know, I think a lot of people think, ooh, ick, TV retail. Well, I have new well, you've been in the clothes, so you know what they're like. They're amazing. Great. I look, I mean, there's pictures on my Instagram where I look better than I've ever looked in Marla's stuff. So you guys should go look. I mean, amazing. Well, the clothes, you know, I wear my clothes. I mean, you know this. I, this is what I wear. It's what I live in. And I wasn't about to make something that I wouldn't wear. Um, it didn't feel authentic and it didn't feel like, I know a lot of designers who make what I call cheap and cheerful and they would never wear what they make. And I decided I was going to be at the high end of TV retail and I was going to do pieces 
that would, um, and in fact, my pieces have been private labeled to Neiman Marcus. So the same things that you had at HSN were at Neiman Marcus under their label. So we really um, have had an amazing trajectory and it's come from a combination of determination, my love of learning new things, and uh, the need to earn a living, and loving what I do because I, I actually believe in the product. I think we offer a great pro product at a great price. And it's, it's opened up a whole new world for me. And while so many of my contemporaries are contemplating a second act and even more still retiring, I'm like, how am I going to get the revenues up next year? And what can I do next? So we're now developing a makeup line and also a home collection line. Wow, that's incredible. So what is it about you? I mean, obviously, you just like to keep moving and learning. Which Is it learning that's at the key of why you keep reinventing? Or is it that you just use learning to crack open whatever that next nut is that you need to deal with and it's really life situations that are changing you or what is it? Well, a life situation motivated me. I mean, when I tell you I lost everything, I mean, I turned the nanny's room, I, I, I took boarders into my house in 2008 mostly and it paid for, you know, I learned to make meatloaf on Monday that was meatballs by Friday and I mean, it, it was, it was rough, but I am privileged. I am privileged to have an amazing group of, of women in my life, men in my life, friends in my life who supported me and guided me. And even though they thought I was insane when I did this, have supported me all along. And I think what drives me is I, I am like, um, I'm like an emotional shark. I have to keep moving. I can't, I cannot sit still. I go on a vacation. I want to go see uh, how, you know, the, the local grocery stores and how people live. I want to go see businesses. I want to meet people who do what I do so I can learn how they do it. I am constantly in intellectual motion. I'm either reading or listening to a TED talk or creating something. I need my brain stimulated at all times. And I think that's what motivates me. And taking on the challenge of building a business you know nothing about it's a bit of a challenge. <laughs> so what were the challenges? Can you talk about that? Because there are a lot of people here who are going to be listening. Let's, let's be honest. Everybody's businesses have all been crashed and trashed and people are, have lost their jobs. They're not going to be able to go back doing what they did. What do you see? And especially talking post-COVID, because um, now we're moving on to that side or on, on the second side of uh, the first part of COVID. What do you see fashion business? What do you see as openings for people who may come from tech or from law or from banking? Do you see any, any good news there? And where should people look for jobs um, or how should they learn to translate their skills or should they run away from fashion completely? Uh, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to tell you that what 2008 taught me is that in the worst of times, there's opportunity. And what you have to do is pivot, right? So the apparel industry in February of this year looked very different than it does today. And I've spent a great time, great deal of time, oh yes, Googling and listening to podcasts and, and talking to people and 
reading experts, not only in my industry, but across industries, um, and particularly cross-functional industries, supply chain, technology, um, and also the world I believe we're going to live in. And I think that a lot of people would like to do a lot of things. First of all, let me address your question about fashion. It is a ridiculous industry. Um, and it is an extremely tough industry. I thought, you know, being in Hollywood was tough. Oh my God, that was like a kiddie's pool. Um, because the litmus test for getting into fashion is I have an idea. Um, most of the entertainment industry is controlled by public companies and, and people are tough and they are hard and they can be difficult to deal with, but they're publicly traded companies and there is a level of ethics that operates that is void in many places in the apparel industry and you have to look long and hard to find wonderful companies and manufacturers. I happen to have gotten lucky. So if you want to start a business, my first piece of advice, and I don't care what you're looking at, is you better find your passion because it's damn hard. There is no easy, and I would say I'm lucky. I am lucky. Ten years ago, I lost everything. Ten years later, I earned it back. Um, you know, but it was a hard, long, lonely slog. And, you know, in between starting a business, life happens. You know, my kid got sick. The economy goes up and down. And now, just when I think I'm rocking and rolling, we open up in 250 Chico stores and they all shutter because of COVID. I think we are going to look for the following things. I think we are going to buy better and buy less in apparel. You don't need 50 t-shirts. I, I think quality counts. I think we're going to shop more like Europeans have always shopped. You know, when I moved to Paris, I walk into this apartment I'm going to rent and I'm looking for the walk-in closet. There are no closets. Then I'm looking for the kitchen there's a couple of pipes. You got to build it. It was a whole other universe, right? So because you didn't have walk-in closets and your apartment was 300 years old, you bought some armoires and that's about all the clothes you had. And it made so much sense. You still spent as much, but you spent on better things. I think we will dress more high, low. And by that, I mean, you know, an H&M t-shirt for 10 bucks. And, uh, you know, a fabulous blazer that you could find on the real real or something nice that someone like myself makes, it's still going to run you, you know, anywhere from 75 to $175. But I think we're going to be more thoughtful how we spend money. I don't think we're going to dress up the way we did. I think it's California chic from here on out. I think people are going to want to be much more comfortable. I don't think they want to keep taking things to the dry cleaners and buying them back. And I think we are more aware of waste and buying a ton of clothes, you know, you give them away, half of that ends up, you know, in, in garbage piles. And so I think that sustainability, which you know about, and the lessons of COVID will, at least for our lifetime, change the way we dress and the way we want to be. Did that answer your question? It's interesting. I think all of that is going to happen too. And then there are other people who say to me, oh, well, remember 9-11, everybody said no one was going to fly again. Everybody said 
blah, 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 blah. And I want to live in New York again. Da, 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 da. And then three years later, it's all back to the same thing. I think this is heavier than that. And because this is worldwide, it's different. What do you think? Um, I've been thinking about what I'm going to do when HSN says, uh, New York's open, get on a plane. And I got to tell you, I don't know how I'm going to answer that. I mean, my sales have been just as good Skyping from my living room. Um, I have to do a little redecorating and write it off. So that's good. Um, but I will tell you that I think this one's different and I think it's different. 9-11 happened to a group of people in a space. And it scared us, and it did forever change us, Leslie. We kept traveling, but look at security now. There was none of that nonsense before. 9-11 made us afraid. Americans weren't afraid. And all of a sudden, 9-11 made us afraid. We, we became aware of fear as, as, a, as a country. What COVID has done, I believe, is made us realize that what happens in Wuhan, China, can affect you. What happens in Timbuktu can affect you. We are, get the message people, one world. And because of flight, because of travel, because of technology, because of all these things, and now we've seen what a pandemic can do. And as we sustain more and more global change, um, you know, global warming, I think that we're going to have that this is only the first of many pandemics because we are unleashing microbes and new cellular structures that the world has never seen before. And if you read history, when one population from one continent came to another continent, it infected the locals because they had no immunity. So we may develop herd immunity from this, but I don't think we will develop emotional immunity from this because it is not going to be the last. That's, that's my personal uneducated No, no, it's, it, it's very, yeah, it's very interesting. If you read a lot of history, um, there's a big revisionist history that goes on about the whole explorers. I don't know if you've ever read any of the books by, I forget what his first name is, but it's Man is his last name. And he's the professor who writes all about historical um, stuff and he looks at it from both a sociological and medical background and he says the reason why when the explorers arrived in the Americas where they, they, they said that it was empty, it wasn't that it was empty, it was that all the native populations had been decimated Devastating. Yeah. by yeah. all the Europeans who had come in, you know, the first time they set foot on there and they literally wiped out. It was like 95% of all the indigenous population, 95%. So it yeah. wasn't that it, nobody was here. It's that they just were all dead. <laughs> we killed them all. We killed them um, all. So. Well, I, yeah, we killed them all. So that was, that was very thoughtful of us. And so look, uh, will we, listen, humans don't really learn I mean, we are in some ways so ridiculous. Um, you know, we thought, oh, World War II, genocide, blah, blah, blah. Well, and then we watched it in Ethiopia and we watched it in Eastern Europe and we've watched, you know, we've watched it all over the world. We don't seem to learn some things, but I do think we morph and we change. And I think technology has changed us a great deal. And I think that there are opportunities in this time. So if you're sitting at home and saying to yourself, well, uh, my career is not coming back. 
my strongest advice, I always had a fashion, uh, passion for fashion. I loved it. When I lived in Paris, we were friends with a lot of the people in the industry and I got to go to fashion week and sit in front rows and private tours of Dior and just having amazing exposure to fashion. Always loved it. Loved it. So I was very passionate about this and it will take passion to fuel change. It will take determination to fuel change. You've got to do your homework. You Google it. Um, you've got to talk to people. And I think the most important thing, which is something that I respected about you when you left more, we've talked about this. You asked questions and you asked for help. You weren't like, Oh, I'm Leslie Jane Seymour. And I know, you know, I had, you know, for years you wrote about, um, you know, starting over and, and creating a new career. And when you came to that place, you have the strength and the confidence to realize you can ask for help and that doesn't take away from you. And that was the single biggest lesson I had when I went through this life change of going from being a television executive and producer to a fashion designer was reaching out to people and saying, hey, I don't know everything. Can you help me? Can you give me your opinion? I think that is key. Um, and, I, and I think you also have to be a realist. You know, you can't build a business out of a bad business model. So you have to think it through every step of the way. What are the economics of it? What's the need? What's the target? How are you going to reach it? You know, business 101 and logic have to be employed, you know you have to really think through the sector and you have to do your homework. So it's passion and then it's just a lot of damn work. But what about fashion in particular? Cause I, I mean, fashion, it's interesting what you were touching on there. Um, what I found so difficult when I was writing about fashion is that the people who were leading the fashion business, it was all about their gut. There was really no, there was no business, there were no numbers, there were no, there's very, it's very hard to track fashion. It's very, you can't, um, you really can't focus group fashion, just as they found you can't focus group fragrance. When you focus group fashion, it's what happened to the Gap um, when they first got rid of Mickey Drexler, they ran the Disney parks and they thought, okay, we're going to just start doing it the way we do Disney parks. Which ride do you like? Which one do you want? We'll build more of those. And what they got was more white shirts and black pants, which is not what anybody needs. It's not like that. So how do you, if you want to go into the fashion business and you're coming out from something else, what are the things that you need to know? Are there three key things you need to know, like find yourself X or avoid X, or do you think it's all been thrown up in the air because of COVID? First of all, I think the way to launch now is digitally native. Um, I don't think it's about planning to sell or private label to department stores because I think that model is fairly broken. Um, and it's a very difficult one. And it takes a lot of cash. I would say pick, if I look at some of the most successful launches in the apparel sector, um, a brand called Kuyana that I love, Lunia that does pajamas, M. Jemmy that does shoes. Um, uh, you know, these are companies that took a, Everlane, huge success, started with a man's T-shirt. That's it. And now they do men's, they do women's, they do shoes, they do everything. 
but it, I think they, they launched in uh, 2011 or 2012. So it's, you know, and they, they were financed by, uh, the, um, I think, about a million in VC capital. I would say pick an item, an item, so that you can take advantage of Google search and SEO and make sure you pick an item where there's a white space. And my advice, don't go after millennials because everybody's chasing millennials. There is no white space. It's just a crowded race across the finish line and very few make it across. I think looking at underserved markets in apparel makes sense. The plus size market makes sense. Women over 45 or 50 makes sense. Specific needs. For example, someone wrote to me about, I'm a breast cancer survivor. I have specific needs as I was going through it and reconstructive surgery and I needed soft things and blah, blah, blah. I think that's a sector. Um, but I would keep it very narrow because if you, if you spread too wide, reaching the consumer base is too difficult. Get as narrow as you possibly can and then you better figure out your supply chain. And I would say supply chain maintenance is one of the toughest things about the apparel industry. Can you keep it in the U.S. at all? Or is it, do you think things are going to change post-COVID oh. that the supply chain thing is going to change? Oh, gosh, I hope so. And, and I say that having a fantastic Chinese manufacturer, but we are struggling with these issues right now. I do think people are going to care increasingly where things are made. But here's the problem. Nobody in America wants to sit at a sewing machine all day or run knitting machines. And we've lost our ability to make things. So can I make every single thing I make in the U.S.? Absolutely. And there are brands that do. Eileen Fisher makes everything. Well, she makes a lot here, not everything. But the same thing, kinds of things that she can make at a certain price point here in the U.S., I could do very similar pieces out of Europe, out of China, excuse me, for way, way less. So there is a pricing issue because when you go to make things in the U.S., there are very few places to do it. If you're going to do what's called cut and sew knit, like um, T-shirts, right, you know, like round span, cotton, that kind of thing, there is a fairly decent supply chain manufacturing chain in L.A., and you can make denim in the U.S. But when you want to go make sweaters, which is a huge part of my business, a sweater that costs me, I, I can sell to you for $70. I would have to charge you probably $170 to $200 to make in the U.S. because there aren't that many machines and there aren't that many knitters and there's not that many technicians. We got rid of our ability to make things. Do you think that's going to change? Do you see that changing? I hope so. Or do you see us always leaning on the cheaper? Um, if, if people are going to go away from this cheap, throwaway fashion and we're going to buy more. And I, I'm with you on that. I think from a sustain, I think this is what woken people up in terms of sustainability, in terms of why are, you know, like it gave us a moment to stop and say, why are we doing all this stuff we do? Right. Cause we were just doing it. It just happened and we were doing it and we continued. Um, if we are not going to be, you know, flushing away, into you know the sea or into big piles all these clothes that we wear one season and throw it away and if we go back to making 
better things. Do you think that there is opportunity there for people to learn how to make things again? Of course there are, is. I mean, people can always learn whether they'll be willing to learn is another question. But I hope, I mean, we do about 30% of my manufacturing here in the U.S. We do as much as we can and we do a lot in Mexico. I'm seeing globally in my industry, people are going, oh, not China. What about Vietnam? What about India? What about Sri Lanka? What about here? What about there? I mean, people are, Cambodia, people are like looking all over the planet. I think that you're going to see a workforce evolve out of Africa. And I think that we will take advantage of the weavers and the dyeing and the beautiful work that they do there. Um, and I think that that'll be good for those, you know, economies. Um, but I also think we need to start making things in America. And if we want to make things in America, we're going to pay more. That's just how it is. So you also, you know, launching a brand based on sustainability and made in America is not a stupid thing to do. And do you think if, you know, yes, people, so they can look beyond China, they can look in, in different places. But when you think about all these people who are being displaced and they had gig jobs, right? They were driving Ubers, you know, a couple of times or whatever. Do you think that, you know, because th those were some of the industries that our forebearers had and brought with them because they were needed and they could be done and sewing and knitting and all that kind of stuff. And we are talking um, about people who want to be creative. I mean, I wonder if there's going to be opportunity there for people, you know, who want to do something totally different. I if think so. Look at Etsy. Etsy has been a great platform for smaller brands and very artisanal kind of work. But it's a question of what kind of living you want to make, right? Like, it, you know, small business generates a small return, a big business generates a bigger return. So it's also about what your needs are. My needs when I started my business was that it had to be very scalable because I had, I was a single mom with the responsibility of two kids and I had to make money. So I couldn't say, oh, I just want to do something very crafty. I started by designing jewelry on my, in my trailers when I was on TV sets all the time. And I loved it, but it wasn't, I couldn't scale that. I just couldn't scale it big enough. Right. So I, you have to decide, you know, there's a cost benefit to the path you take. Do you want a small business? In which case you can be more artisanal and you can do things in the U.S. And I do think that we will have to have a new kind of gig economy. I'll tell you something that interests me as a model in fashion. Do you remember, uh, well, it's like the Tupperware of fashion. There's, uh, there was worth which is gone now, but Carlisle, Cabby. Yes, all the at-home you know, stuff, yes, okay, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm investigating this um, quite heavily right now because I believe that there are a lot of people who can build, and you can make a lot of money selling that stuff, believe it or not, depending on the model. And I think that people are going to want more home-based businesses. Uh, technology certainly allows us to have home-based businesses. My CFO, I've seen twice in my life. <laughs> like, she, she doesn't leave her house. You know, there's a lot of home-based businesses. And I think for women who love fashion, 
there's an opportunity to get into the sales side of it because I do think we're going to prefer a more curated, thoughtful, personal kind of interaction when it comes to shopping. But I don't think we're going to want to go into a department store and try on a shirt that somebody else just tried on in a cabinet that's teeny tiny and God knows who was in it. And do they have COVID or the next thing? I think we are going to want a much more personalized kind of a, a world. And I also think returns are going to get tougher. Ooh, talk quickly about that and then we'll have to go, but I want to hear about that. And also you're totally right about the, uh, we had at Moore had written about something and dot. I can't remember the name, but it Stella was a woman, and dot. Stella and dot. Stella and she dot. had a yeah. billion dollar business by, she yep, was one of the right. first ones making jewelry that you sold at home. And I remember when exactly. we did the story, and the piece came in and it said, she's approaching a billion. I sent it back and I circled it. Do you, and I said, do you mean a million? And my no, writer came back billion. and they said, it meant a billion. <laughs> and I was like, right? what am I doing wrong? Why am I a stupid editor of a magazine? Why am I not selling jewelry in someone's house? You know? Well, here's the thing. In the same way that our grandparents came over to this country and were peddlers, whether it was pots and pans or thread or nylon, they went home to home. I think that one of the things technology has done is we're alone together, right? And I think that people are going to be uh, wanting close circles of influence, not some influencer that I've never, you know, I don't care what Kim Kardashian's wearing, frankly, but I do care what you're wearing and what makeup you use and what pots and pans you like. And you know, it's like, I think this personalization of sales will become very, very important. And I think that home-based businesses are a very smart place to look, particularly in fashion. No, I think that's very wise. And I think you're right. I think you're totally right. And I, that just feels completely right. Because I am not going to a store and touching all the clothes that somebody just 500 people touched. You're it's exactly. not going to happen. Just ain't going to happen. Nope. And because I think we have been so rattled by this being this giant cataclysmic thing that you need that individual touch. You need that encounter. And, and weird, and in a weird way, all this zooming that we're doing, we're getting to know people who would normally be strangers to us, but we're getting to know them. And we're getting to know them on a one-to-one -one because your face is right there, right? You're not in a big conference room and they're sitting five blocks away from you. They're right there in your face. I think there's something coming like that. I think you're onto that. Okay. So now I'm going to quit Covey and I'm going to start my home-based jewelry business. <laughs> okay, well, I, I've, got some, I've, I've got some jewelry you could sell. Good. I'll start. I know. I'm... I'm I'm really looking at this model. I mean, I love I've got my eyes focused on it like nobody's love business because I Brilliant. think it's the future. Brilliant. I think you're totally right. Miss Marla, thank you for spending time with us. And uh, where can everybody go to easily find the Marla Wayne collection? Where's the fastest, um, easiest way? The, the fastest, easiest way is to go to my website and it'll say shop. And it'll take you directly, depending on where you live, if you're in Canada, the U.S., Europe, it'll take you. So if you go to my website, it'll take you straight to my brand page on HSN, or you can go to hsn.com, put in Marla Wynn. Wynn is my middle name. 
or you can go to Marla Wynn for Chico's and uh, the best of the very best is there as well. Well, awesome. And I hope also people will look, they can Google you and me together and you're quite the comedian. I play your straight man whenever we do videos together. Marla is a, is a basic stand-up comedian. She needs a stage, so everybody needs to, to listen to her. So thank you so much for spending time with us. I'm so glad. And now you've given me all kinds of ideas. So it's great. Well, I'm always here to brainstorm with you, Leslie. It's always Good. a pleasure. I love what you're doing. And I love this notion of lifelong learners. You two have tapped into something key. Yep. We're all lifelong learners. Thanks, darling. Good to talk to you. Talk soon. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed our discussion with Marla Wynn Ginsburg and boy, what great ideas. I hope this inspired you. I hope this gave you some places to start. And I assume that all of you are going to sit down with the Google machine and get to it. Um, in any case, thank you so much for joining us. And if you liked this, uh, this moment, Marla. I hope that you will go back and listen to the almost 100 different people we have so far on Reinvent Yourself. And I hope you will subscribe. I hope you'll pass it to your friends because we want to help everybody we can. We want to inspire. We want to give you actual ideas. And I hope that you'll also join us at Cubby Club. We have really ramped up our virtual learning. You can go to the Covey Club website, coveyclub.com, hit attend and look at all the courses, these mini hours that we are adding for lifelong learners like you in everything. We are interviewing every expert we know who has ideas for how you might reinvent yourself, things you might be interested in, financial success, how to deal with uh, industries that are dying, what to do with healthcare, how to handle your relationships with your older children, you name it, we got it. And we're doing a lot of it live, and then we're producing videos that come out of it that you can listen to whenever you want to. Anyway, I hope that you will join us over there as well, and I hope you will come back and listen to you reinvent yourself. So happy reinventing.